This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said to shoot 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls podcast. <laughs> Thank oh, you so much. to have applause. <laughs> My name is Anthony. I'm sitting next to Sky here. Welcome. Yay, I'm here. I'm in Boise. I'm at Tree Fort. This is so exciting. Yeah. Is this your first Tree Fort, Sky? It is. It is. Nice. Yeah. What do you think so far? It's super fun. Um... Yeah, my, my little brother was in it, and so I got to see, and my cousin, so I got nice. to see them play, and that's been fun, and I'm just excited to be back in Boise in the fall and not in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Flew in from Dallas, Texas, working on her PhD right now. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> not a big we deal. We don't talk yeah. about it. It's huge. It's so awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Story Fort, Tree Fort, for mm-hmm. having us out here to tell some true crime stories. Uh, this, of course, is a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. And we've got some pretty good stories for you all today. So I think, I think you're starting. Yeah. Well, today I'm going to talk about confinement and the importance of music at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Anyone been there before? Yeah, almost everybody. Cool. All right. So that prison was active between 1872 and 1973. Over 13,000 men, 217 women were incarcerated there. So just a general idea. Uh, Basically, people from every corner of the state were all brought here to Boise to serve their time. So with that, we all kind of got a tiny taste of confinement last year. Lockdown was rough. And we missed out on a lot. And, uh, of course, to all of us here in this room today, concerts were a big thing that we were missing. And prison authorities have always known the dangers of idleness as it spawns depression, bad habits, poor choices, and, you know, escape, you know, escape ideas there, as we heard in that oral history. In the 1920s, the warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary started a factory for prisoners to manufacture T-shirts. This meant a regular required job for prisoners where they could raise money to buy commissary items, send letters, apply for paroles and pardons. And it lasted until the Great Depression. Then lawmakers banned this across the state, across the country, across the nation, prison-made goods nationwide. So the shirt factory closed in 1933. It was common for prisoners to have instruments like guitars in their cells. And during the summer of 1932, there was a story about the prison baseball team aptly called the outlaws, who were struggling as their ace hurler, nicknamed Diamond Dick, was recovering from an appendicitis operation. So this is a great little newspaper article I found about some music performances. The prisoners were trooping to lunch Wednesday noon discussing the probable outcome of Saturday's game when a loud and disturbing noise emanated from the doorway of one of the cell blocks. 
One of the prisoners was strumming a guitar and giving voice to what he thought was a song. Firm in his resolution to stop such a frightful noise, one of the prison flunkies grabbed a potato, (laughs) called out the name of the cell block musician. When the personage appeared in the doorway, his mouth still agape from recent vocal activities, the flunky wound up his arm and let loose with a potato. The sponge lodged squarely in the yodeler's mouth. No, it didn't. It did. The noise stopped. The prisoners (laughs) ate their lunch happily, and the flunky, now christened Two-Gun Pete, is the new outlaw pitcher. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You can imagine, it's especially today, you can't just walk around and whistle in prison. You're going to bug somebody. You're going to get hopefully as little as a potato in your face. (laughs) (laughs) So a few years later, the prison warden, Pearl C. Meredith, approved a new constructive program for the prisoners, a monthly prison magazine called the Wall City Bulletin. When the Wall City Bulletin began in January 1939, the Idaho Statesman ran a story about it, opening with the lines, quote, One of the greatest problems which wardens of the Idaho prisons have been compelled to face during the last few years has been to do with finding employment for prisoners for convict idleness, as everyone who knows the first ABCs of penology is aware. Is a vicious thing, perhaps the worst enemy of forces working for reformation and rehabilitation of the prisoners. Warden Pearl Meredith has been attacking the problem with all the weapons at his command and is noteworthy that he has found a great deal to occupy the time of his charges, even though available funds are extremely meager. Just off the press is the first issue of what is to be a monthly publication, Wall City Bulletin, written, edited, and mimeographed entirely by prison talent. About the size of the standard magazine, it is attractively and neatly presented. Articles and departments not only show ability, In many cases, they approach real literary merit, and the whole periodical has about it a tone of mental healthiness which speaks volumes for the morale of the institution. Almost feels a little demeaning, but uh, (laughs) one of the first articles in the magazine is called The Advantages of Music, uh, and that's on the right-hand side there, written by the prison music instructor named Ronald Falk Bradley. And Ronald, he was actually, he was on the outside. He would come to the prison every week, and he worked at this place called the Jim Baker Music Service Shop, just up a block on 9th, where Banana Inc. is kind of next to the mixing bowl, if you've all been there. And he would come into the prison every week to give music lessons and direct the prison band. And in the first article, he noted that he had about 25 men studying music with him and 14 in the prison band, 9 in the orchestra. The music shop furnished the instruments for the prisoners, and he taught the full range of instruments, uh, including guitar and banjo and piano. And in the article, Ronald also said that he had many friends who were hired because they had music ability. Quote, I have been asked many times what advantages music offers to the working man. First, music is not a gift of the gods. In my own case, everything I have learned about music has been earned. Anyone who has a sincere desire to learn music can, although it comes easier to some than it does to others. And uh, myself, I uh, had to work really hard as a musician, so I... I'm with him, yeah. Music, it requires years of dedicated practice, constant. And it's, I mean, as a hobby, it's a lifelong thing that can keep you out of trouble, keep your mind. That's why I'm always in trouble. I can't do anything <laughs> it's true. with music. Yeah, right? <laughs> and at the bottom of this article, Ronald actually wrote that he had friends who had gotten jobs for their particular skills within music. And so he says, quote, I know of at least six men, former inmates, who are increasing their earnings through their musical ability. It would be incorrect to say that everyone with the ability to play well can command a job or a salary, but 
it certainly does increase the family income in many cases. I was like, oh, that's, that's really nice. Uh, further into this first edition of the Wall City Bulletin is a note looking to fill the vacancy in the music department. And at the very end, there's a note about learning the guitar. Quote, those wishing to study the steel or standard guitar are advised to see Lewis Ensley, assistant instructor. And here's where I actually found my first musical prisoner instructor. Lewis Leon Ensley was born in Blairsville, Georgia on September 15, 1906. And at the time of his incarceration at the Idaho State Penitentiary, he stood 5 feet 7 inches tall. He was 149 pounds, had dark brown hair, a medium complexion, and had been living in Twin Falls, Idaho. He lists his job upon intake as musician, and I found mentions of him as a guitar teacher in Quincy, California by the early 1930s. And this was the time of big band music, and most guitarists played in the rhythm section, just chunking out chords. And the first electric guitar was a lap steel, which was created in 1932 by Rickenbacker. And the first recorded amplified guitar was by a jazz guitarist. In 1935, Eddie Durham, on a track by the Jimmy Lunsford Big Band, Hitting the Bottle is what it was called. Mm. So your first electric guitar solo track, Hitting the Bottle. I think it's just very apt. Uh, As a musician, (laughs) Louis Ensley would most likely have been up on all this at the time. Um, I mean, he would have seen the evolution of acoustic to electric guitars, which would would have been amazing and as a musician like every time I see new iteration of a new instrument I'm like oh I gotta I gotta get that uh, as my music room would and my wife could attest to <laughs> so unfortunately he'd begin 1933 in Folsom prison in California for the crime of driving car without owner's consent Apparently, during his visit to California around New Year's, he stole a car in Fresno, or uh, borrowed it, and he drove back to Idaho, back to Twin Falls, and authorities in Twin Falls arrested him, brought him back, and he was sentenced to one to five years and given the number 18294 in in, uh, Folsom. His sentence in Folsom began January 30th, 1933, and you'll see he seemed to have a problem with taking things that were his without people's consent yes yeah 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 yeah. such a nice way of saying he stole a lot of stuff (laughs) (laughs) right it's usually like grand larceny yeah yeah it sounds a lot more serious than just like oh he just borrowed it without someone's permission (laughs) so after his release he returns to idaho and his old tenancies return in may 1938 here in boise just a few blocks away it was noted by the secretary of the grand jury, quote, is quoted in the history of jurisprudence. It isn't often a man is indicted for trying to steal a house and its contents, end quote. Yes. Lewis was charged for burglary of a house. <laughs> so if you can go to the next slide so here. question. <laughs> <laughs> when he entered the home of Boise undertaker Clyde Summers and began to auction off the furniture he found in Clyde's Wait, vacant what? house. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if anyone's familiar, the Summers funeral home downtown. So this is Clyde Summers. He was a, a major member of the local Masonic Lodge and uh, he was the head of the Elcora Shrine in, by 1940. So if you go to the Elcora tonight to watch a concert, you can see his, his photos hanging up there. Right as you go up those stairs to the left. He's right there. Uh, so Clyde had been at all these ceremonies with the Masons that week, and Louis Ensley walked into his house, well, broke in through a back window, and just started auctioning off his things. And this was without his permission, right? 
I, I would say okay. so. Yeah. So, so, okay. So he just like started taking his stuff and walking out the front door and just like highest bidder, yeah. whoever wants it. Was, it it was a it. yard sale in somebody else's yard <laughs> with somebody else's items. That sounds like the best kind of yard sale. <laughs> right. And it's not just any Joe Schmo. Like this is the undertaker. This is the head of this Mason group. So people are like, are you sure that Clyde is okay with this? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> So he gets charged with burglary in the second degree. They don't they don't keep that burglary of a house, but uh, he pleads guilty. So they charge him with burglary in the second degree. Sentence to from two to five years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. And by July 1939, all the music classes were filled and a waiting list was started. In September, prisoners working in the radio repair shop at the institution repaired seven radios. And quote, a new amplifier was fashioned for the steel guitar players in music. I could only imagine the sound of that room. And it wouldn't get any better because the next month they actually got an amplified ukulele, which oh, I've no. never heard of. I thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing. Uh, so new instrument I'm going to have soon. Yeah. So Lewis was released after giving lessons to the prison population after two years in April 1940. And I actually didn't find that he ever got in trouble after that. I don't know if he probably went back to Twin Falls and kept teaching guitar, playing concerts and different things. Uh, I actually found there's a section in the Wall City Bulletin written by this woman named Edna Eckersley. Oh, yeah. Number 5315. And she wrote a section about a fuzzy musician. And the section called Down in Front, News of the Women's Ward. And the July issue, she noted, quote, Smokey, our cat mascot, will have to change his ideas of life or else. He seems to have his days and nights all mixed up. He enjoys playing the piano at midnight. Uh, I thought that was the cutest thing. So uh, the Wall City Bulletin ran for one year in 1939. And then after that, eight years later, they started a new magazine called The Clock in 1947. And unlike the Wall City Bulletin, which only ran for that year, The Clock ran until 1976. And it evolved from this like single page, pretty rough kind of legal pages one page at a time to these nice little sleek magazines that are about half a sheet and then to full-on like legal like uh, newspapers which are are amazing they're full of photos and drawings and fun little stories and you really get the humanity what life at the Idaho State Penitentiary was like through these Mm -hmm. and I mean each article would have to pass through a censor so a lot of things didn't make it through or were altered to please the prison authorities but there are still some pretty funny things and i i think just this collection of photos you can see the evolution these are all the kind of music themed front magazines but there are hundreds of these things nearly every issue has some reference to the importance of music on the prison population Interestingly, in the in the early 1950s, this cell house called Number Four House, they had uh, radios wired up in each cell, so you could purchase headphones, plug those in, um, pop in your headphone jacks, listen to two radio stations, whatever the uh, the guard on duty chose for you. And in the clock, they would talk about all the upcoming stories and radio shows that were going to be on that month. So they were like speaking to the local radio stations and trying to get a good little uh, idea of what was going on. Now, in the February 1952 edition of the clock. The roving reporter, as he called himself, interviewed a prisoner named Garth Reynolds, who was the former musical director at the prison. And he had quite quite the prison record. Uh, his name might sound familiar to any regular listeners of our podcast. I, uh, he was an accomplice to 
an escape artist, a squawky mm. brewer, a yodeler named Harley Carringer that I actually did a live episode with our boss right here, our <laughs> site administrator, the old Iowa <laughs> Penitentiary, Amber Byerly. Thanks for coming, Amber. Garth was born November 29th, 1924 in Malad, Idaho, which is in southeastern Idaho near the Utah-Idaho border. He was raised LDS. He had brown eyes, dark brown hair. He was five feet, seven and three-eighths inches tall, weighed 125 pounds. He had a medium complexion. He drank, he smoked, he gambled, he had several tattoos, two semesters in the Utah State Agricultural College under his belt, and he didn't do dope. So that's... Was he a communist? Was he a communist? That was not on this questionnaire. It's probably a bit early for that. A little bit, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So he served in the United States Navy during World War II from September 15th, 42 to July 12th, 45, when he was honorably discharged. And a year after his discharge, he was busted for writing fraudulent checks at Hotel Logan in Logan, Utah. He ended up pleading guilty and was lodged in Utah State Penitentiary on New Year's Day, 1948. State officials visited the prison for a two-hour-long rollicking show to greet 1948. <laughs> And there were 25 numbers, including skits, poetry, dances, and music. And wouldn't you know it, young Garth Reynolds put on a solo saxophone performance of the Cole Porter tune, Ace in the Hole, from his musical, Let's Face It, from 1941. And I actually have uh, a Garth Reynolds coming up to the stage right now to perform this number with us. This, of course, is Mike Ward, a fantastic musician. This is very exciting. We don't get live music very often. (laughs) Anthony's the the music master, though. Oh, man. Excellent. <laughs> so uh, this morning I asked Mike if he would learn this song with me. So <laughs> thank you, Mike. He has an ace in the hole. Be- besides music, he also brews beer. So if you want to support him, go drink some mad sweet beer. He probably brewed it for you. So <laughs> thanks, Mike. Uh, the the lyrics to this song are: Sad times may follow your tracks. Bad times may bar you from sacks. At times when Satan in slacks breaks down your self control. Maybe as often it goes, your A.B. may tire of his rose. So, baby, this rule I propose, always have an ace in the hole. Just such a great song. So, Garth Reynolds, in front of all the prison administrators, governors who are coming to watch this performance, and most importantly, the Board of Pardons and Parole, they see him perform this. And within a handful of months, he's released on parole from the prison. 
He had his ace in the hole for sure. I mean, performing music. Just to produce some good art that'll help your case, I think. Yeah, that was good stuff. Less than a month into his freedom, he's busted for grand larceny in Idaho. So taking things without someone's permission. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Apparently, almost immediately after his release from Utah in June of 1948, he wrote a bad check before actually crossing the border into Idaho thinking that you could probably get away with it because, you know, I'm going to Idaho. They won't, they won't care about me in Utah. But Utah authorities were closing in on him as he lived and worked all the way up in North Idaho at the Vets Club up in Coeur d'Alene. And instead of going back and facing his old charges, he decided to commit a crime at the Vets Club. Because, you know, I don't want to go back to Utah State Penitentiary. Let's try out the Idaho State Penitentiary. <laughs> so he actually steals $508.75 from his employers. And the prosecuting attorney, seeing Garth was a veteran, hoping to, you know, give him a chance, urged the judge to be lenient. And the judge, he did so, though reluctantly, and he offered Garth a deferred sentence, basically a year of probation where he must refrain from alcohol, stay away from places where they dispense alcohol, and he had to reimburse all that money to the Vets Club and to the county for all the traveling he had to do for his uh, incarceration and his trials. And so he works that for about three days (laughs) and he breaks his parole he steals a car in riggins and drives to camera wyoming (laughs) and he's busted by fbi agents and returned to idaho the judge said quote now not only have you turned traitor by violating the confidence of the prosecuting attorney but you have deliberately ignored the orders of this court He handed Garth 14 years hard labor at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and he arrived July 28, 1948. He's released on parole two years later, April 1950. He stayed out of trouble. By September 26, 1950, he was declared a parole violator again, this time because on September 10th, he found an open window in the garage of the Champneys Motor Company in Malad, Idaho, climbed through, stole about $130 in cash, and a stack of checks worth about $2,000. So it's our favorite games, Guy. Okay. How much is $130 cash in 1950 worth in today's money? Um, I'm going to say probably like around 500. Oh my gosh. Oh, I hate it when you say it like that. 1,475, oh like $1,500. Oh, that's a lot of money. Right? So he, so he spent about $50 in that cash. So about like $600 in, in just a couple of days. Don't know what he did with it, but yeah. Good for him. I <laughs> yeah. wish I had that money to blow oh in two gosh. days. <laughs> so... He's sentenced to 15 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for burglary in the first degree. And prior to his transfer to the Idaho State Penitentiary for a second time, he was actually being held in the Bannock County Jail with a prisoner named Harley Carringer. On Wednesday, October 4th, Harley and Garth tore up their blankets, tied them together to make a rope, and after the night guard left, they began sawing the bars of their cell. And I have to let you know, there were 28 other prisoners watching this within that same and some in their cell and they just were like nope we're not part of this but they break through they climb down this rope harley actually falls from the rope and breaks a leg Uh, but he's fine enough that they actually steal a convertible and ride off into the night 
Ah, the next day, Garth Reynolds was, quote, found asleep in a convertible stolen here. He was captured by R.D. Pugmire, Montpelier policeman. Pugmire reported that three guns, including a pearl-handled revolver belonging to Bannock County Sheriff Alma Marley, were found in the car. Reynolds offered no resistance when arrested, so they looted this police station after breaking out of their cells, so... Not good. Not, doesn't look good for the police. And Garth is finally returned to Idaho State Penitentiary October 13, 1950. And with a long history of incarceration and escape under his belt, Garth would have been welcomed and probably respected amongst the prison population. He quickly got work leading the music programs and working in the new education building at the prison. Now, let's go to the Clock article interview with Garth Reynolds called A Task with Mr. Music from February 1952, two years into this sentence. Sky will play Hugh, the roving reporter, and I will answer as Garth. All right. Tell me, do you think that the study of music is a constructive rehabilitation project? Most decidedly, Hugh. Music is a rehabilitation project. There has been excellent progress made towards rehabilitation in the music field. Many men have bettered themselves socially as well as professionally through the music department. All this is old stuff to you, Garth, but do you think the rehabilitation officers will sponsor another institution, orchestra, and band? Pugh, on this question, let me quote you quotes. As soon as the space is available for the proper function of the band, there will be a program in effect. Sure, I hope so. Can anyone join this group? Well, I'm not sure about the system to be used for determining who would be eligible. You know, under the old system, anyone was eligible, but now I just don't know. It need not be said that men with previous musical experience will be most welcome, but as to beginners in band and harmony, theory, and composition, cases will be decided upon from the vocational officers. Well, that's pretty clear, but tell me truthfully now, do you think a band and orchestra is really needed here? By all means, Hugh. Personally speaking, I think a band and orchestra a major asset to any penal institution, especially here, where we have limited recreational program. When the new ball field and theater are in operation, the band becomes more necessary than ever. Playing at the games and concerts, too, can be very entertaining to both the public and inmates. Here is the sticker, Garth. Does music have any backing? I mean, can you put to practice on the outside what you learn here? I see what you mean, Hugh, but I'm not qualified to answer that with, as an authority. It is strictly up to the individual. Both you and I know people who have studied and even mastered music in prison and have gone out and obtained good-paying jobs. So you see, Hugh, it can be done. There are men in here who would rather steal a two-note rest than steal a car. What I mean is, while you are being trained to forget crime, you are also being trained for a good-paying job. Let's call it a twofold job of rehabilitation. Garth, there are many questions I would like to ask you, but we must cut our interview short. But tell me, is there any talent in the institution? By all means, Hugh. We just received an excellent piano player, and there are some holdovers from the old combo. A real gone-from man, and there's myself on the sax. Altogether, I'd say with all the new talent, we could have a fine outfit. Do the majority of inmates here endorse your opinion? Yes, I would say that they do. Of course, you realize that there are some people who wouldn't like it, but then they wouldn't like anything. <laughs> on the whole, a large majority would appreciate a sort of program in the day room on Sunday afternoons. Now here is a very important question, Garth. Given the go-ahead from the front office, how long would it take you to get a serviceable band together? Well, Hugh, let me answer it this way. Given a few months, we can have a fine band and orchestra. Given the go-ahead, in a few weeks, we could have an entertainment group. The reason I say weeks is because we would have to build up our lips. 
Well, thanks, Garth. I'm sure the fellows here will join me in saying that this has been a very interesting interview, <laughs> and we are all looking forward to seeing you upon the podium in the near future. Garth was a very cool cat sax player, and I only know this from reading all of his articles in The Clock. He has this very hip, like, beatnik kind of thing going on in everything he writes. He's paroled from the institution November 13, 1952, and he wouldn't stay out long. In January, he was declared a parole violator and returned to the institution again, and it appears that he set down the baton leading these bands in 1953 and became the editor of The Clock, the prison newspaper. And he held the position until his release in 1954. And in an article called Alia Electra S. The Die is Cast by J.M. Whalen, he writes, Garth accomplished much for the success of The Clock and deserves more credit than we could give to him. His efforts to break the monotony of prison life and bring the public to a closer and more humane understanding of the prisoners were deeply appreciated by the inmates of the penitentiary as well as those of other prisons. On March 25, 1954, Garth was awarded Agricola's Award of Merit for worthy and outstanding recognition in the field of penal journalism, and so grew the popularity of Garth Reynolds as an editor. But it was not until the results of the Iowa State College's penal publications ratings were made known that Garth felt satisfied with his efforts to improve the clock. In this survey, the clock was rated first in readability, and fifth in human interest. A great honor indeed. Now the die is cast. Garth is turning a new leaf in his life. He intends to make journalism his career. Surely somewhere out there in the free world, a publisher can give him the chance he has earned. And with that, Garth Reynolds became a free man and he would not return to prison until 1955 (laughs) when he was busted after fleeing the Elko High School building with a bunch of stolen goods and he was sentenced to the Nevada State Penitentiary which would be followed by a stint in the federal penitentiary for violating the Dyer Act, driving a stolen vehicle across state lines. So maybe Garth is not the best example of rehabilitation through music, but it shows that you have an ace in the hole, whether it be a skill at saxophone or reading or writing. Uh, be ready to use that ace at a moment's notice. Thank it sounds like his main problem was he just needed to get permission to take stuff from I think that's, that's it. really yeah. the, the big problem. I mean, I, I think. think that's a lot of people's yeah. problem to recover. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Well, excellent job. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Anthony covered the music part because he is a musical genius. Um, and I wanted, we kind of wanted to do like a tree fort theme with Boise and music. And so I am doing the Boise side. So I am talking about number 4860, Angela Hopper. 
My sources, just really quick, her inmate file, um, newspapers.com articles, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, ancestry.com, cityofboise.org, history of St. Teresa's Academy, and uh, Wikipedia. So since we have limited time and Angela has such a well-documented story, uh, I normally would go through sort of the history of the town um, at the time, but um, we don't have time for that. And also um, a newspapers.com search of her name in Idaho turned up 1,300 articles. So it's a tough story to pare down, I will do my best to keep us um, getting out of here at a reasonable hour. So Angela was born Angela Margaret O'Farrell. A lot of newspapers call her Angeline, but I think Angela was her given name. She was born uh, in Boise to John and Mary Chapman O'Farrell, who were both Irish immigrants. She claims on her intake that she was born in 1884, but she does appear in the 1880 census. So her birth date is most likely February 6th, 1880, because she would not have appeared in the 1880 census if she hadn't been born until 1884. Now, her family is considered one of the pioneering families of Boise. Um, And according to her mother's obituary, John and Mary married in Kentucky in 1861, but, quote, joined the caravan of pathfinders and arrived where Boise now stands in 1863. Forty days afterward, the first corner stake for Boise was driven by Mr. O'Farrell, end quote. And Angela was the fourth of five girls born to the O'Farrells. She had older sisters, Mary, Evelyn, and Teresa, and a younger sister, Regina. Now, interestingly, she also had an adopted sister named Rose, who died in 1891. And an article in the Idaho Semi-Weekly World stated that Rose was actually an American Indian. She was the niece of Chief Winnemucca, who was born a Shoshone, but married into the Northern Paiute and was a well-respected war leader. And so the article stated that Rose was captured in a battle between U.S. troops and the Paiute in the Malheur Basin in eastern Oregon. And the commanding officer of Fort Boise, Colonel Jasper B. Sinclair, gave Rose to the O'Farrells to raise when she was just seven years old. And then that same article stated that Rose's five-year-old brother was quote-unquote presented, which I don't really like that phrasing, to President Andrew Johnson Quote, and the president put him into an educational institution at Baltimore where under the fostering care of civilization, he died at the age of 13, end quote. And so when Rose died in 1891, Angela would have been about 11, but they would have been raised together, which I thought was um, an interesting little tidbit. So Angela did well in school. She attended uh, St. Teresa's Academy, which is a Catholic girl school that actually eventually morphed into Bishop Kelly in 1964. And she was actually given several awards through her school uh, career for like politeness. She got a a certificate of excellence in rhetoric. Um, She wrote several essays. She played piano instrumentals for various city programs. She just was all around super well-recognized. And she graduated high school in June 1900. And her mother, Mary, died in May 1900 after suffering from a heart disease for over a month. And from Mary's obituary, it says, quote, Mary expressed regret that she could not live to see her daughter, Miss Angela O'Farrell, graduated in June from St. Teresa's Academy. Miss O'Farrell was selected as a class valedictorian, and the selection greatly pleased her mother, end quote. And so during Angela's valedictorian speech, she, quote, beautifully discussed the reasons why virtue and truth were worthy of attainment. Her effort was an original and able one, and the applause that greeted its conclusion showed that her audience was with her, end quote. And so this is, there's like a lot of foreshadowing, I'll tell you that right now. Um, So uh, unfortunately, in May 1902, her younger sister Regina died of uh, pulmonary tuberculosis or consumption at 16 years old. 
The next article I find of her is in June 1904, which declared that she left for San Jose, California to quote unquote enter school, but it doesn't really say what the school was. It was probably, I would imagine, a normal school or a school for her to sort of learn how to be a teacher. But actually by October 1904, so just four months later, the statesman said she was actually teaching in Meridian. So I don't know if it was just a really short course or, or what uh, the, the situation was there. And so um, on April 24th, 1907, she married a man named Edward H. Hopper in her home. And so Hopper was actually from Spokane, and the newspaper reported that they were going to live in Spokane together, but within a year they had moved back to Boise, and there Edward worked as an insurance agent. In 1910, they were living with Evelyn and Teresa at the O'Farrell cabin, the home there, and then Angela's son, John Mayfield Hopper, was born November 16, 1911, at the St. Alphonsus Hospital. Uh, eight years after her marriage, in March 1915, Angela filed for divorce, which was granted on April 17th on the grounds of non-support and cruelty, and she was given the custody of, of John, and uh, the two of them lived with her older sisters in, in the cabin. Now, after uh, her divorce, Angela needed to get a job, and it seems she found one in the Boise City government. She first became the deputy county treasurer and ex-officio tax collector in June 1917. Then in September 1919, she was recommended for city clerk by the city finance commissioner when Phoebe Orvis, the previous Boise City clerk, resigned. And she would hold the position of Boise City clerk for the next 14 years, and she was kept on through several mayoral changes. So she was pretty integral to the finances of Boise City. Over the next 14 years, there were hundreds of mentions of her name in the newspapers, mostly because any new city uh, legislative change was published with her name on it. There were also a few random personal mentions of her sort of here and there over the years. For example, in November 1928, the Daily Statesman reported that Angela and her family were home suffering with colds. In October 1932, the Statesman reported how well Angela's giant lilac bush had blossomed. And then this was a very funny article from March 17th, 1928. Quote, will someone kindly tell Mrs. Angela Hopper where she can get a couple of nice mountain lions and a nice tame bear cub used to handling? Apparently, Eli Nelson, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, thinks the duties of an Idaho City clerk include acting as a nursemaid to various and assorted fauna. He wrote to Mrs. Hopper asking her kindly to supply him with the animals mentioned or tell him someone who could fill his needs, end quote. Um, and so I think an interesting thing in, in that is we kind of see how people in other parts of the country see Idaho is just this yeah. like backwoods moment where like everyone must have contact with like wild animals and things. <laughs> Um, Wait, did you see that there was a bear in the North End yesterday? Like oh, a what? black bear? No, thing? I didn't. Something crazy. He just wanted yeah. to appreciate the music. Yeah. <laughs> just it. wanted to, you to have a, a good time going at Treefort. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta get a pass, bear. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get COVID clear first. COVID um, and another interesting article, again, some very clear foreshadowing. Oh, no. So from February 1928, quote, Boise Treasury balance totals $91,177 Thursday. City clerk's ca- quarterly report shows 26% of budget yet on hand. In the quarterly report of Mrs. Angela Hopper, city clerk, including both the general fund and special funds, the city has 
365 remaining out of, these are all numbers, blah, blah, blah. Then a few months later, an article published with the title, City Clerk Keeps Eye on Budget. Quote, as Boise City's fiscal year slides down the greased chute of time into oblivion, Mrs. Angela Hopper, City Clerk, is watching expenditures closely to make sure nobody exceeds his budget allowance, end quote. And trust me when I say she did indeed have her eyes on the city budget. You know, Angela just overall is is very well recognized and respected around Boise as a city clerk. There was another story about how um, one time she was endorsing a check and she took a phone call in the middle of it and then was like, oh, I already signed this and set it aside. And then when she got to the bank, she found out she had just signed her first name to it. And But the bank clerk was like, oh, yeah, I know who you are and just checked it anyway or cashed it anyway. So everyone knows who she is and, and things seem to be good. But on September 28th, 1933, from the Daily Statesman, quote, embezzlement charges rock Boise City Hall, Angela Hopper arrested, end quote. She was arrested because there was an alleged shortage of more than $10,000 in accounts of her department found by public accountant Clarence Van Dusen. Um, He said this shortage dated back to 1926, which was seven years before this article came out. And she was obviously immediately discharged as city clerk by the mayor. A hearing was held following Van Dusen's report, and Angela admitted that she knew there was a shortage, but said she didn't use any of the money on herself. So you may be wondering, how was it possible that she was able to steal essentially $10,000 over seven years? So according to a Daily Statesman article, there were certain special district accounts that weren't audited annually the way that everything else was, and she knew that. Mm -hmm. And so she would kind of steal here and there just little amounts. And how she did it, basically, she only stole cash, like, quote unquote, from the till. Um, I don't think there was like an official till, but she would just steal cash. And then when people paid for things in a check, she never issued them a, a receipt and then would use the cash to balance the amount of the cash that she had taken. So things sort of would always balance out. I don't understand how money works, but that's uh, that's what the newspaper said. That's it. I don't know. Yeah. That's what it said. <laughs> so... Um, one of the accounts she stole from was quite a bit was actually the Boise Independent School District, which is such oh a bummer. Like, why do we have is to steal from way? education? <laughs> so from the Boise mayor, J.J. McHugh, quote, I am horrified at the calamity that has struck this city. This report staggers me. I hardly know what to say. I can hardly believe it's true. Mrs. Hopper has always been a faithful, cordial, and extremely cooperative worker. To say that I regret this event cannot express my shock, end quote. Um, And then uh, Ross Caddy, who was a city councilman, said, quote, for many years, Mrs. Hopper has been one of the most trusted and appreciated city officials. We are at a loss to understand how this could have happened, end quote. And then the next day, uh, more details of the audit that they uh, they instigated came out. And a Daily Statesman reporter asked Clarence Van Dusen his thoughts on the case. And he said, quote, you can tell the world for me that this is the cruelest case I have ever had any contact with in my 35 years as auditor, end quote. And so Angela was held on a $3,000 bond, which she paid and was released on her own recognizance, and her court date was scheduled for October 9th. Then on October 23rd, 1933, Angela pleaded guilty to embezzling a sum of $49,000, according to the prosecution. The sum would continue to grow as auditors supposedly continue to uncover more and more missing money. And I think part of that is because they had to do it by hand, 
which would take forever and sounds like the the worst experience in the whole world. So by the time the massive audit was over, the amount would be stated as $78,983.48. And so you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. How much is that? So this is 1933, $78,983. Five million. Oh, you you went real high. Real that's, high. That's, I don't know. It's uh, one million six hundred fifty thousand seven hundred and thirty, wow. which is still an obscene amount wow. of money. Oh my god! And so how it happened is she started embezzling as early as nineteen twenty three, just three years after she started as the city clerk, and she started with just little amounts. She started her very first amount that she embezzled the first year was forty seven dollars and eighty nine cents. And then they would just get larger and larger and larger. At the height of her embezzlement, which was 1931 to 1932, she took $18,722, which in 2021 is $334,000. Just in one year and no one noticed. And in the fiscal year of 1933, so she was arrested in October. So in the fiscal year from May to September, she had already embezzled $7,702, which is almost $161,000 just in four months so she just was bold and brash and thought she could get away with stuff was she like living it up like well we'll get into what she was possibly doing with it so she was sentenced to serve one to ten years at the idaho state penitentiary for embezzlement her intake form she was 49 years old born on february 6 1880 born in boise idaho occupation clerk hair brown complexion medium weight is 213 and a half pounds her build is large and tall her residence is in boise she is divorced Her teeth are fairly good, and her chin is regular, so that's good. Um, Nothing major noted on her um, Bertillon. She had several varicose veins, but nothing uh, else of note. She joined only three other women in the women's ward. Uh, One was Helen Hall, who I covered season five, episode six. She was in for a prohibition violation. Uh, Marguerite Boggan, who came in that same day for involuntary manslaughter, and our very favorite, Lida Southard, um, who was in for uh, second-degree murder. And then within a month, they would be joined by another woman named Marjorie Devaney. Now, because of the small number of women in the women's ward, Mrs. Rudd, who was the matron and also the wife of Warden Rudd, may have started to take a few liberties with the women inmates. And so according to a former night matron named Nora Dickard, Lida, Marguerite, and Angela were all taken out of the prison numerous times to go on road trips and excursions into town. Warden Rudd and his wife took Lida and Marguerite to Twin Falls when Lida's mother was sick, and they even left them alone to go pick up another prisoner in the area. At another time, they took a day trip to the cabin up in the woods. In one incident, Mrs. Dickard wanted to go to the movies, so she went to Mrs. Rudd and asked if she could go, and Mrs. Rudd said Lida had to go to the warden's house if she went, so that Lida wasn't alone in the women's ward. And at first, Lida said she wanted to stay and do some gardening, but then she thought about it and she said, okay, so she said, fine, I'll I'll go down to the warden's house. And then Mrs. Rudd and one of her daughters entered the women's ward and asked if Mrs. Dickard cared if Lida went to the movies with them. She said, might as well just bring them. And so Mrs. Dixon said, quote, they had been taking other prisoners off the prison ground and I did not see any reason why Lida could not go. I told Rula, who was Mrs. Rudd's daughter, why no, I don't care if she goes. 
And so they went to the Egyptian, actually, and they saw a movie called The Flying Devils. Um, so this is 1933. This is the, um, from IMDb, this is the summary of the film. And it is, it's basically about a parachute stunt diver. Um, and he's with a flying circus group of barnstorming pilots, which her husband is the head of. And then she meets and falls in love with the younger brother of her husband's partner. And so they get teamed up to do this double parachute jump, her husband and the man that she has fallen in love with. And um, so when her husband learns about it and he has this half-crazed condition from a World War I accident and he devises a scheme to get rid of uh, the lover and so he suggests that they pull a sensational stunt, zooming toward each other in airplanes and then bailing out just before the two planes crash. The lover agrees, but he doesn't know that the husband has cut the lines of his parachute. Oh, that's the summary of it. So wow. I don't know how I don't know what happens, but that's that's compared to <sighs> sitting around exciting. and gardening in the prison. I think that would be pretty exciting. Yeah. Now most of these incidents actually happened before Angela got there, but she did play a significant role in the storyline. The same Daily Statesman article that broke the story about sort of this corruption published a letter from the penitentiary physician that wrote, quote, My dear governor, whereas there has come to you certain criticism to the effect that Warden George F. Rudd and Mrs. Rudd, the matron, did take for a car ride the two lady prisoners confined in the women's ward of this institution, you will kindly be advised that on account of this, the mental and physical condition of Mrs. Angela Hopper, who has been received as an inmate of this institution on the preceding day, I advise the warden that something should be done to react against the almost complete collapse of Mrs. Hopper. And when he informed me he was going to pay out after a prisoner, I advised him to take her along, and I am pleased to say further that the ride did her much good, end quote. And so Warden Rudd tried to defend himself, saying he was, quote, merely trying to act with due humanity to his charges, end quote, which I can appreciate, you know, but they are in prison for, and especially Lida, who (sighs) should not have been left alone at any point, but... They also also said about taking Angela to pay out, quote, it was my candid opinion, as well as that of Dr. Wall, that unless we could do something that would relieve the shock somewhat, that we would have to bring her to the hospital. So basically, like, she was in so much shock, we may have to take her to the hospital. As few people can realize the suffering that such a shock brings to one, especially used to the finer things of life. Mrs. Hopper had cried almost continuously from the time she was received until Mrs. Rudd asked her to go for a ride, end quote. In December 1933, Warden Rudd um, actually faced a hearing for all the allegations against him, and there was more allegations than just the women's ward, which unfortunately we don't have time uh, to get into. And on a vote of two to one, the board asked Warden Rudd to resign, which he did. But November 1933 brought new shocks to the Angela Hopper case when, on November 18th, Angela's 21-year-old son, John Hopper, was arrested for receiving money stolen by Angela. So um, the prosecuting attorney, Homer E. Martin, said, quote, I have ample evidence now in my possession that John Hopper received more than $20,000 of this money, and I have filed a complaint against him charging the receiving stolen funds for the amount of $20,401.49, which is $426,000 in 2021. So while John awaited trial, a grand jury was summoned to probe even deeper into the missing money, and the auditor, Van Dusen, continued to deliver reports. However, a wrench was thrown into things when, in January 1934, Van Dusen left Boise for Nyssa, Oregon, out of the reach of the grand jury subpoena, and refused to return until the personnel of the jury was changed, telling the Ada County Sheriff, quote, Judge Kolsch knows the reason for him refusing to appear. 
Yeah, so some speculation that it was because of an incident uh, that happened several years before with a for- the foreman um, of a jur- of the jury. His name was John Shore. So I think there was like a personal thing that happened between Van Dusen and this Shore. And so basically he was like, I'm not working with that jerk anymore. Uh-huh. So like, I'm going to leave. And until he's gone, I'm not coming back. But just three days later, Van Dusen changed his mind, saying in a statement, quote, I have been advised that many people believe my reason for refusing to appear before the grand jury is not one which I have publicly given, and that my real reason is a desire on my part to shield somebody. To me, this puts the whole situation in a different light. I am prepared for myself to take the consequences of public criticism for the position I have taken, but I am not prepared to do injustice to my friends or those who have employed me, end quote. And so on January 10th, 1934, Angela appeared before the grand jury to answer questions about the missing money, and she testified for about two days. And it took another nine months for the grand jury to return a verdict. And and so while sort of they're, they're deliberating, John John's trial starts. It starts on February 6th. The trial took less than a week. Angela testified she had sent money to John, but did not specify if the money she sent was the money that she had embezzled. The state introduced evidence in the form of telephone bills totaling $4,500, which is nearly $100,000 spent on telephone bills, which is insane. So part of the reason is he lived in California at the time, and he had just gotten married to this, like, to an actress who I think was sort of a... She didn't have the best reputation as an actress. So the amount of telephone bills between June 1931 and September 1933 exceeded Angela's entire official salary by $11.53. And that seems like compelling evidence to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I I'd say so. Um, so unsurprisingly, he was found guilty and sentenced to two to five years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And on September 1st, four more embezzlement charges were returned against Angela Hopper. She pleaded guilty to all four charges and was sentenced to one to 10 years on each count for a total of four to 40 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Wait, four to 40? Four to 40. Wow. Yeah. So during the sentencing, she asked the judge if she could serve all four new sentences concurrently, but the judge said that the sentences had to run consecutively, not concurrently, which is surprising. Wow. Usually they'll let them run concurrently, mm-hmm. but he said, sorry, you got to <laughs> run them all together, just end, end on end. This would eventually get changed, but she would serve the four plus the original sentence concurrently. The court asked if she had anything to say before sentence was passed, and she said she had not, quote, got all that money. If I had, I would have paid off the mortgage on my home, end quote. She also said she lied only twice. Once when she said that her son had never worked, and once when she told the city council that no one was involved but herself. Lying's different from stealing. Either way, I guess you don't have permission to do it. (laughs) John was released from prison in October 1935, but three weeks later, he was arrested again on a drunken disorderly charge and was held in the county jail. After this release, he decided to return to Los Angeles, supposedly to study law, um, because he had taken correspondence law in the penitentiary, but he would just get into more trouble in the future. So basically, the the Secretary of State writes her, and he's very frank with her. He says, you know, you've come before the pardon, you have been denied twice. And he says, quote, this denial was entered very largely because you have stubbornly refused to account for the money taken from the city treasury of Boise City. You know, he says that you said it was this amount, but really it's between eighty-seven and ninety-two thousand dollars, which is crazy. Then he says, before John was committed to the state penitentiary, you perhaps had some reason for refusing 
to admit to this, but since John has served his time and pardoned from the penitentiary, it seems to me you have nothing whatsoever to lose in making a clear and concise statement of what became of this money. Now I'm going to suggest that you take a small tablet or paper and sit down and carefully work out from your memory what has become of this large sum of $87,000, and when you do, I can promise you that I will at that time be ready to vote for your release." She decides not to do that, decides to wait until April 1938 to apply for pardon for a third time. Um, And this time she has something to say for herself, and she writes a note with 15 points as to why she should actually be released. And here are just a few. Um, One is that she, her actual time served is four and a half years, the nine months over the minimum, um, and that she says that, you know, she's been on good behavior, and now she really has served six years. Number five was that she said she lost my paternal and loved home since here. And actually what had happened is her remaining sister, her uh, Evelyn had died. Teresa was the only living sister. She'd lost all of the family money. And so from being this pioneer family, they were now destitute. They were about to lose this historic cabin. And number 13, the most compelling point throughout my case, I have told the truth. So um, she said, quote, gentlemen, I make this a prayer to heaven that that could only let the world know I certainly by far am not as black as painted. It is needless to say that my conduct will never cause you to regret a vote for my release as my life will be above reproach. Being unable to hire legal representation, I must make my own pleading. Therefore, I beseech and implore and beg of you to grant my liberation under any condition you desire. She was denied pardon in April 1938. She applied again in October 1938. She got denied once again. Finally, she does receive a conditional pardon on December 8th, 1938. She credits this pardon to Secretary of State Ira H. Masters and wrote him a letter saying, quote, Dear Mr. Masters, to me, ingratitude is one of the most despicable traits of a human. As I do not want to appear as such, I take this mode of expressing my sincere and deep appreciation for your kind action in granting my release. I pray that someday, in some way, the truth of my case will come to light. Most certainly, I am innocent by far of the majority of changes made, end quote. She would be under this conditional pardon for a year with the understanding that she would go to San Francisco and stay with um, some friends she had out there, and they had a secretarial job waiting for her. And so by the time of her release, she had served five years, one month, and nine days of four one to ten year sentences, essentially four to 40 years. She received a final discharge a year later on December 11th, 1939 from Governor C.A. Batolfson. And to California she went, and both she and John would remain in California for the rest of their lives. Once in California, it seems that she preferred to go by Margaret, her middle name, and I can't say that I necessarily blame her. John died on July 14th, 1951 in San Francisco. He was only 40 years old, and I couldn't find anything that said what he died from. Um, And then Angela died just two years later on June 3rd, 1953 of a, quote, long illness, end quote. That is the story of 4860 Angela Hopper, who embezzled insane amounts of money from the Boise City (laughs) clerk's office. What? What? Where did the money go? Like, what was she spending Uh, it it on? Basically, the the argument was most of it went went to John. Um, But I think, I don't know if, it said she was used to the finer things in life, so she was probably, Probably all these society parties. Yeah. That's why she's so popular. She throws the best parties. She has bobcats and, like, wild animals. Yeah. (laughs) Bears, and she knows where to get them. She knows, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, nice work, Sky. Yeah, you can visit the O'Farrell cabin over there Mm -hmm. on 4th Mm -hmm. Street, and now you'll have a little story to tell about Angela Hopper, the O'Farrell family, uh, pioneers, and... Yeah, very a lot exciting. of people don't know about that. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't know about that until I did deeper research, right. which is oh very cool. Gosh. So 
And John was kind of seen as like a playboy in uh-huh. town, right? Uh-huh. Wasn't he like cruising around in like the top of the line cars? Yeah, cars well, and that was because he was out in Los Angeles. So yeah. he had gotten this like actress wife. And so he kind of gained this like ego while he was out there. And so he came back into town and he was like, <laughs> I'm hot stuff. And uh, and so that was, I think, part of the reason that they did not look favorably on him oh, yeah. when he was arrested. So Awesome. Yeah. Great work. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for sticking around listening to our stories uh, behind gray walls. I hope you enjoy the rest of your tree fort. Stay safe, stay hydrated, and we will see you around. Do your own time. Do your own number. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. (laughs) If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more old Idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the old Idaho penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.